Good morning, everybody. Um, our text this morning is Luke 10, 25 to 37, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that. Um, <clears throat> you know, if you're around uh, a church long enough, you actually get to preach a sermon twice. And uh, you know, the blessing is um, that, well, <laughs> the trouble is you look back at some of your old sermons and you think to yourself, I actually preached that? And the blessing is you get to preach it over again. And that's true of this sermon. It was in 2009 um, that I preached this text in the, in the mission conference, uh, Who's My Neighbor? Um, and uh, as I looked at my sermon, I thought to myself, wow, this is one of those moments I actually kind of go to get to go into my file and pull something out, and it feels relevant for the moment. And um, and as I read through the sermon, I thought, wow, you just so missed the point. <laughs> and, uh, and I did. And uh, there was good stuff in it, but there are things that I missed. And so I start here. Um, this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And uh, whether you think you know what the parable of the Good Samaritan is about or you don't know what it's about, I would ask you to look at, at it with some fresh eyes. Um, because it seems to me that in 2009, I didn't know what it was about. And uh, I would say there's probably some of you that may actually find the same thing. Um, first of all, the parable of the Good Samaritan is not an allegory. That means that you can't look at all the chunks of the story of the Good Samaritan and input uh, modern day um, things like the inn is not the church. And the two coins that that the Samaritan gave to the innkeeper is not like baptism and the Lord's Supper. Like you can't do that with the parable. Uh, thankfully, I didn't do that, but there are people who have done that and I've read commentaries um, of the like. The parable was not intended to stand alone um, and become a moral lesson. This is a real danger in the church for all of us. Uh, because there's a lot of really true stuff in this parable, and it feels very, very easy to apply to our circumstances today. But that's not the intention of why the parable was given. Uh, that is to say, you can't look at the parable and say, these two guys over here don't be like them. The good Samaritan is the good guy. Be more like him. That was not why this parable was given it may be something that is true, but it isn't the intention of what Jesus was saying. Jesus is, in a sense, the good Samaritan of our souls. It is true, but not the teaching of the parable. I've never taught it, like I said, as an allegory, but I think 10 years ago, I dabbled with the idea that the intention of this parable was to transform us into people who care about people who are hurting and people who are lost. That is not the intention of this parable. The message of the Good Samaritan passage is simpler than that. And as I said before, maybe not what you expected. For your Bible study, um, context really matters. Parables are told for a reason, and they are told in a cultural context. And the reason why this parable was told, it becomes the meaning maker of the parable. The context becomes the meaning maker of the parable, not the other way around. 
as if to say, if I could just unlock the puzzle of the parable, then I would understand what God was saying through Christ. That's not true. The key to this passage is not the parable, but the context. And the context is a confrontation between Jesus and a lawyer. And the hooks that we hang, uh, our understanding of this text are found in the four questions that are asked. Three before the parable and one after the parable in verse 25, 26, 29, and then in 36. Let's read the parable, let's pray, and then let's dig in. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell amongst robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, it, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, even as I read that, I know your mind's like my mind. It is just so hard to break free of that parable because it is so rich with the stuff that we know that we probably don't live rightly. And we hear Jesus saying it, and we think to ourselves, I gotta live more like that. I need to be more like that person. If I could free you from that, if I could somehow come down and shake you enough to say, that's not what this parable is about, I would. Let's just pray that the Spirit of God would do that. Let's pray that the Spirit of God would set us free so we could see more clearly what Jesus is doing here. Father God, we need your help. We need your help to be able to, 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 be able to have eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord God, we don't want to fall into the trap of, of this lawyer 
and so not hear what you're trying to say to us. It is so easy for us to go with the trappings of our youth and listen to the way pastors like myself have taught a passage like this and think that we can do it, (laughs) think that we can get it done. God, would you shake us free of that? Shake us free of our performance. Shake us free of our, our doing it right. Shake us free so that we might see Jesus and see the value and the great glory that is salvation in the gospel. We trust you. In Jesus' name, we all say, amen. I need this. I so need this. And uh, I gotta say, this, uh, this passage has wrecked me again in ways I never thought it would. The first question that, uh, the first question that comes up, the first hook that we hang this passage on is, is the lawyer's testing of Jesus. The lawyer tests Jesus. Verse 25, and behold, the lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Um, This lawyer is not a legal representative for a courtroom like we would typically think of a lawyer. This lawyer is an expert in the law. He's an expert in the Torah, the the Hebrew Bible. He was probably the smartest guy in the room. He's the guy who, he's got the courage to actually actually stand up to the maker of the universe, the lawgiver himself, the law writer himself, and he's going to test him as if he knows more about the application of the law than God. It seems a bit ridiculous, but this is the pupil looking the teacher in the eye as if he knows how to teach the teacher. As we'll see, he falls into his own trap. The first point of application I'll I'll set before you is this. Every single conversation that we have, every single conversation we have is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to listen to someone's heart because we know from the scriptures out of the heart, what? The mouth speaks. And every time somebody opens their mouth, their heart spills out. They say something about what they believe. They say something about who they are. They say something about what their greatest needs are. They say something about what they love the most. It's no different for Jesus and this lawyer. This lawyer has no idea where he's headed. He has no idea how much in the very first question he's already revealed about himself. Is that a little scary for some of you? Like, I don't like being seen that much by people. That's why, like, when I'm with my brother, who's like a professional counselor, uh, we all as a family are a little bit apprehensive to reveal something about ourselves. Because my brother is sitting there going, hmm. (laughs) And it's terrifying. But God has made us in our humanity, to spill out. I was talking to Barb, uh, Barb Crandall before the service. And she said she had this encounter with, with somebody who's just not like her recently and, and realized that even her facial expression is a spilling out. 
our first encounter with somebody, as we respond, we find out who they are or what group they're a part of, what nationality they are or what they believe, our facial expression becomes our first spilling out of what's going on inside of us. Is it not? It's happening here too. He says, teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? You know, this, this word inherit is, is a bit loaded for a Jewish man. To inherit something, it harkens back to, just as we talked about Good Friday, it is finished, harken back, it means a lot to us. To inherit to a Jewish man is, it harkens back to even the, uh, the promised land. How does one get the promise? They inherit the promised land. And there was something of performance that always was reflected in inheritance or no inheritance. It's how God taught people about who he was and what he was like. And so this question for him is, how do I get what it is that I long for? How do I get to to the promised land? How do I get to eternal life? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get in the right bloodline? How do I get in the right way so that I can get what it is that I long for? This isn't the only time this question is asked in the scriptures. And really, it could be asked in two different ways. It can be asked like, the rich young ruler, which is very similar to this question, Luke 18, 18, he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's longing for something. He doesn't really see what's going on, much like this Lord, he doesn't really see his own heart well, and Jesus reveals to him how it is that he's gonna be pursuing eternal life, and he says, go give away your goods. And he can't do it. And he bails. Second way you can ask this question is more like in Acts 2, 37, when, when Peter is preaching of the kingdom of God. And the spirit of God is upon him. And he's, he's kind of going through that Old Testament history all the way up to Jesus. And the people before Peter, as the preaching is finished, they say to themselves, what should we do? What shall we do? And this is a heart, this is a heart that is soft and seeking. What is the next step? Where do I go with the truth you've given me? What do I do next? It's not unlike at the end of a service like last Easter, or or last week, Easter Sunday morning, where, where I say, listen, the next step, if you would like to talk about receiving Christ, if you would like to make a profession of faith, Here's the next step. That's the other way this question could be asked, but that isn't the heartbeat of this lawyer. The heartbeat of this lawyer is more like the rich young ruler. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He he doesn't say it with pure motives and seeking. It is an important question though, isn't it? Human life is, is hard enough for us to figure out. Just our humanity just our physical bodies, we don't get it. and we, we, we have a hard enough time figuring that part of the world out, let alone eternity. So why the interest? When it's so baffling, why don't we just let it go and move on and just all become agnostic? 
The reason why is because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God, God has set the eternity, eternity in the hearts of men. God has set eternity in the hearts of men. There is an interest that we have because God has built into us a perspective of where we fit in the world. There's something greater than us. There's something beyond this place. And the question of how do I obtain, how do I inherit eternal life is not just a question for this guy or for religious people. It's for humanity. It's why you face within the arts the pictures of eternity. It's why you face within music the, the, the words and the references of eternity. It's why you, you face in all of the sciences They bump up against the questions that are unanswerable and they have to use terms like special power to define it. It's why every religious system has this objective of getting somewhere, trying to answer the question that is placed within their hearts. It's eternity written on their hearts. Just as true, just as true as man's interest in eternal life is man's internal propensity to do something to get it. Adam and Eve in the garden, they rebel against God and and what is their knee-jerk response in this rebellion? They don't turn to God in repentance and cry out and say, we've done wrong against you, we've rebelled and sought God. That's not what they do. What do they do? They attempt to do something about it. They hide. It's the silliest thing in the story, as if God can't see them. They clothe themselves. Fig leaves. Adam, he he justifies himself. This woman you gave me. Friends, isn't it the question that's on our hearts? Isn't the question that in the quietness of our, of our bed is, is God, is this really true? Do I really get to be with you for all eternity? Have I done enough? Have, have I followed the right path? Have I believed the right thing? Have I expressed the faith? Do I get to be in It's on the the minds and hearts of people that we spend time with. They might not be saying it that clearly, but God has written it on their hearts, and it is a question. Oftentimes it comes out at a funeral, doesn't it? It comes out when people don't, it's it's like the topic that, that nobody talks about until they're at a funeral. And then it's okay to kind of wonder, They all say the nice things because Aunt Sally's there in the coffin and it's way too painful to say, I'm not really sure. But what's what's needling at them is, could it be true? Could it be true? I don't think this lawyer is being that authentic. I think he actually thinks he's got it made. I think he actually thinks he's got eternity in his heart And he's earned it. He deserves it. And he's putting Jesus to the test. 
He's trying to trip him up. Question number two. Question number two. Jesus turns the tables. Jesus turns the tables. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And this is a great strategy of Jesus. He answers a question with a question because he's directing him to to something in his heart that he doesn't yet see. He was asking him so that he might lead him to what the issue is that keeps him from seeing the truth. Much like Adam. Adam, where are you? It's not because God didn't know. It's because Adam didn't see himself as a hider. Jesus asked in the Greek, the namakos, about the namas. He asked the lawyer about the law. You're the expert. You should know how to find eternity. He knew that the law was most likely, uh, we, we know that the law was most likely worn on his head and wrapped around his hand. He was, he was one of the most important teachers of the law that there could be. And this is the way they showed and set themselves apart. They actually showed their devotion to the law by, by wearing it on their head and wearing it around their wrist. Jesus wasn't being a jerk. He wasn't being antagonistic. Not pushy just asking him and pointing him. He's pointing him back to his authority. Yes, Jesus' authority, but lawyer, what is it that you actually hold so so high in such high esteem in your life? He points him to the law. He points him to the Bible. Without saying it, Jesus is saying, you have the words of life but you don't see them. Here's a warning for us in this. It's a warning for us who could be religious people. People going through the motions, reading their Bible religiously, checking the box, going to church, doing all the right things in all the right ways, thinking that our good performance is going to save us. Thinking that being a nice person to a person in need is going to get me to heaven. It reminds me of John 5, 39 to 40. Jesus is confronting religious Jews. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The lawyer answers Jesus. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now doesn't it seem like in that moment, Jesus probably should turn to something that's a little bit more, I don't know, justification by faith-ish? Doesn't that make more sense to you? But he says, get after it and you'll live. The lawyer summarizes the law. He quotes Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19 and he he quotes it well. 
Jesus basically says, good answer. You got it. You got it right. Go ahead and do that. You answered your own question, quite honestly. Good job. Get after it. And you will live. Now, you ought to be a little bit boggled in your mind right now. Jesus really meant it. He wasn't lying. He wasn't trying to be a con. He wasn't trying to be sarcastic. He was being truthful. If you keep this law 100%, not one day, not one moment of straying, you will inherit eternal life. And we all say, crap. That's what you ought to be saying. Oh, no. Oh, no. I can't do it. That's what we ought to be saying. Jesus says, have at it. Case closed. You can almost picture here Jesus turning and walking away. The conversation is done. The lawyer's not is now at this moment, he's, he's caught in his trap. The tables have turned. Deep inside, he does want eternal life. Deep inside, he knows he doesn't have it. Before he comes face to face with Jesus, he thinks he's got it. After listening to Jesus, he's thinking, huh, The internal conversation of the lawyer goes something like this. Shoot, I am so wrecked. Why am I getting so flustered here? I know this stuff like the back of my hand. Why is my heart pounding out of my chest? Jesus knows that I know the truth. And I know that he knows that I know the truth. And everything in the story turns to slow motion. What do you do? Friends, what do you do when you're standing face to face with Jesus and you think you have all the answers? What do you do when the king of the universe, the creator of who you are, you're standing in front of him and you know more than he does? What do you do? I remember being on a mission trip. First mission trip I'd ever gone on. Ken Hanna was my mentor. Now has gone on to be with the Lord. Spent 30, 40 years in, in uh, Latin America. And I remember this kid, young man. He was tying up his hammock and Ken had told him, the senior, the guy who kind of knew how to do all this stuff, He told him how to tie up his hammock, and this kid thought he knew better. And we're all looking on as this is taking place, thinking to yourself, how rude can you be? Will you just listen to him? As my joy would have it, he sat in his hammock and landed on the ground. (laughs) But what do you do when you're standing face to face with Jesus and you think you got it? 
What do we do? It's kind of like a, a B-rated horror movie when you're staring at the screen and you stand up and say, no, don't open that door. Don't you hear the music pounding? We look at it and say, turn to Jesus. Tell him you can't keep the law no matter how hard you try. Get honest. This is your come to Jesus moment. Just be honest. Let go of your effort. Let go of your striving to get it on your own terms. Stop lying to yourself. Just trust him. But he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He goes in for round two. He doubles down. He braces himself. And here's what he does. He tells us three things about his heart. He tells us that he's not ready to own his own sin. He tells us actually where his greatest sin lies. And he tells us that he knows that he doesn't possess eternal life. All this with the very next question. Number three, the question is, the lawyer tries to hide his guilt. But he, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is where you have to concentrate. This passage is not about who is my neighbor. This passage is about something that's going on in the heart of this lawyer, and the who is my neighbor reveals what's going on in the heart of the lawyer. Now Jesus is going to address what's going on in the heart of the lawyer. His motive is revealed. He's not seeking life. He thinks he's got life and Jesus doesn't have life. Verse 29 says, he's actually desiring to justify himself and prove to everyone and prove to Jesus that he has life. Something that might have said, some because I'm not as gracious as Jesus, some because it may be clarifying at this moment. Something that might have been said is, why do you ask specifically about that portion of the law? Of all that you could have focused on, you, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Why does your heart spill out of your mouth and who is my neighbor? Do you see it? Is it possible, sir? Sarcasm, mine, not Jesus. <laughs> is it possible, sir, <laughs> that you have a neighbor issue? See, the Jews had determined that the word neighbor was for, for the general Jewish population, the word neighbor included other Israelites, other Jews. For the Pharisees, it was a little bit more narrow. If you were a Pharisee, that circle of neighbor was other Pharisees, and they looked at everyone else, including other Jews, as suspect. For the Essenes, it was even more narrow. They had put themselves in the, these are the people with the Dead Sea Scrolls. These, they had put themselves off in the distance, and unless you were an Essene, you were, you were nothing. They were the enlightened ones. Instead of keeping the law broad of, of neighbor, as it was written, they interpreted it more and more and more narrow to suit their needs, to suit their comfort level, as it were. I know I can't love all Jews. I'll just do my best to love these five Pharisees in my circle 
or these 20 families in my synagogue. If you push me to my limits, maybe I can even broaden my circle and take a trip across town to the needier Jewish people in my neighborhood. But if you say, if you say I need to open myself up to a Gentile, I will have nothing of it. Can't bear it. The reason why they, they narrowed is because they, they knew they couldn't keep the law. So what they did is, instead of keeping the law broad, they tried to put it into a manageable bite-sized piece and say, I can't keep the law the way you've given it, and let's just interpret the law this way, and then I can justify myself. I'm actually keeping it. I, I love the people in my area. I love the people in my family. I love the people in my church. I even, on occasion, I love the people in my community. To this, to this heart, Jesus tells a parable. Note that Jesus does not answer the first question, what must I do to inherit eternal life with the parable? You know what happens if you do that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Insert parable. If you live like the Samaritan, you'll have eternal life. This is a wrong way to teach this lesson. Don't be a racist and you'll go to heaven. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus answers the second question because he's addressing the matter of the lawyer's heart. He says, who is my neighbor? Jesus is going to answer his question with a parable. The parable's not dealing directly with the question. I'm, I'm, over, I'm overstating it because I know it's hard to shake it. The parable's not dealing directly with the question of eternal life, but with the heart seeking to self-justify. The heart trying to cover up sin. The heart that is blind to the conviction of the conscience. The heart that has eliminated the conflict in their heart by creating self-adjusting loopholes. If I can't do it the way God says it, I'll just tweak it a little bit. Is that okay? Jesus replied, a man was going down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Every, everybody knew what this meant. Going from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very bad, bad idea, especially by yourself. It was a very dangerous stretch of road. He fell amongst robbers, obviously, to everyone. They'd say, like, well, of course he did. They stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. They took his clothes and leaving, left him for half dead. Two important things to note. To be naked by the roadside is a position of ultimate shame. Everyone sees. Nobody is helping. No clothes, half dead. What they're really doing here is they have stripped him of his identity. How so? There's no ID cards. How could you know what walk of life this guy came from? He didn't have any clothing to identify what side of town he was from. He was unconscious, left half dead. He's not talking. There's no language to identify him with. 
The man in the story could have been a Jew. The man in the story could have been a priest. Could have been a Levite. Or it could have been a Samaritan. They had no way of knowing. And in the story it says it's just a man. The priest comes, passes by. The Levite, he takes one better step. He, he goes over and he looks at him, one step better and one step worse, right? He goes over and looks at him and he's, he, he walks by. Speculation as to why. It could have been a ceremonially unclean kind of a situation. If, if there's blood, if there's, if there's I, I can't touch, I can't be over there, or I'm going to be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. I, I'm not really sure that's speculation. It could have been that they looked at this guy on the side of the road and said, hey, there's probably thieves and robbers on the other side of the hill, and they're going to attack me too, so I'm, I'm out. Either way, there is no excuse whatsoever to leave a man naked and half dead, right? What's next? We have a priest and we have a Levite. To the Jewish mind, there were three categories of people in their society. There is a priest, there is a Levite, and there are the rest of the Jewish people. He says there is a priest, passes by, Levite, passes by. What they're expecting is maybe a, a farmer or maybe a banker or, or a, a person who works with wood or just a carpenter, some, some person from the Jewish community. That's what they're expecting. That's not what he does. A Samaritan? A Samaritan! It was like a swear word in the story. That's how much it stood out. A Samaritan. And it's the Samaritan who sees the situation, feels with a feeling and acts on the situation, cares for the wounds, puts him in his car and gives him a place to stay. He went above and beyond and made sure that he was cared for. It cost him something. He was willing to be inconvenienced. All of that is true of the Samaritan. This is where we hear the sermon within a sermon. And it really is true. These are godly characteristics. Jesus embodies all of these actions in the redemption experience. Jesus is the half-breed. He's 100% God and 100% man. He, he is the good Samaritan of our souls. He sees me. He knows my wounded, left-for-dead soul. And he sees it. To say the incarnation and cross was an inconvenience would be an astronomical understatement. Because this is who Jesus is. It is true. We are to incarnate these things with people around us. The sin of the racist, preferential, narrow love lawyer is our sin. Jesus regularly confronted this narrowing kind of thing when he would say things like, you have heard it said, but, but I say unto you, continually broadening the application of the law over and over again. Brings us to our fourth question. Jesus puts the lawyer in the story. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Notice the change. 
It's not, he's not answering, not, he's not saying who is your neighbor. He is saying who is the neighbor to the one who is left dead on the side of the road. It was obvious. And I'm sure the lawyer hated it. Because the lawyer chokes out the one who had mercy. He can't even say, he can't get himself to say it was the Samaritan who showed mercy. Jesus agrees. He says, you're right. Jesus at this moment is basically saying to this man, how's that working for you? How's that working for you? What does this man need to say right now? What is the right answer from this lawyer at this moment? What is Jesus trying to get at in his heart? The right answer at this moment from this lawyer is to say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I haven't done it up to this time and the way you're explaining the keeping of the law, I can't do it. That's the problem. But there is a solution. There is a solution. We have a savior. We have one that you can turn to who has paid an ultimate price for our inability to keep the law for our sin that just spills out of us every time we make a facial expression and open our mouths. The problem is, love God and love your neighbor is great if you can get that done. That is the truth. The law is good and it is right. But you can't do it. The solution is that's why Jesus dies. That's why we have a savior. What do you do when you're standing face to face with Jesus and you have all the answers? Is to say, I'm so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry. Would you teach me? I can't keep the law. I have not been a good neighbor, and quite honestly, I've manipulated what you have said so that I could feel good about myself. That I could try to create some way of getting to eternal life on my own. And I realize that I can't do it. Would you please tell me again? Tell me again. Tell me again what it is that I need to inherit eternal life. And I'm sure, I'm sure at that moment, in the softness, in the humility before Jesus, he would have said, listen, I'm living the perfect life that you can't live. I'm gonna go to a cross and I'm gonna bear the sin that is yours really to be paid for. And I'm gonna do it perfectly And my father is going to pour out wrath on me that really was intended for you. And all I was waiting to hear is, yeah, I can't do it. 
I can't earn my way. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 10, verses one to four. He says, Brother, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, I will insert that comes through Jesus Christ. And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Again, I insert that comes through Jesus Christ. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. A few closing statements about us being sent to love. The first one is this. Just to get this out of the way, stopping on the side of the road for someone who's half dead is always the right thing to do. <laughs> I, emails, texts, Facebook messages, it is always the right thing to do. But that's not what this parable is about. It is true that we are to love the way that Good Samaritan loves. But that's not what this message is about. Number two, being a good neighbor involves both giving and receiving mercy. And this is painful. A good neighbor gives mercy. And a good neighbor sees mercy coming his way and is willing to humble himself and receive it. If you do not give mercy when it is, when it is, when it is in your power to do so, you are guilty of the law. And eternal life is not yours. Like this lawyer, listen, this is the one that's mind-boggling. Like this lawyer, if you do not receive mercy when it is extended to you, even if it comes by way of a Samaritan, you are guilty of the law. And eternal life is not yours. Praise be to God for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. We're all guilty. None of us gives it perfectly and none of us receives it perfectly. Third and most importantly this, like the lawyer, people around us are already living a life of I've got this. We are sent to love with the compassionate message of you can't do it. But there is good news. Jesus did. Jesus did do it. Last is this. We are sent to love a world that has eternity in their hearts. And they are asking in their own way, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now look at you. What will you do with that question? Are you personally in a place where you are trying to earn your way of eternal life? Do you identify in any way with this lawyer who thinks he's got it, but because of his own merit? The reason why I bring this as our message for mission is because 
If that's the way you're living, that's the message you're gonna give out to people. And I so don't want you to give that message out to anyone. It doesn't sound pretty and it doesn't sound sing-songy. But you can't do it is the gospel. Jesus did it. And he's the only way for eternal life. That's the gospel.